Amen, indeed. All right, uh, if you have your Bibles open, uh, please uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. And um, we've, we've kind of hit a new spot in the book of Ephesians. And, and for those of you that are familiar with the book, some of you may not. Let me just tell you where we're at right now in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters, uh, Ephesians is split into half. So chapters 1 to 3 and then 4 through 6. That's kind of like how it's divided. And chapters 1 through 3, typically people say, well, you know, those three chapters deal with the indicative, who we are in Christ. Or, and then the last three chapters deal with the imperative, what should we do in light of that? Or some people will say the first three chapters are about justification, and the last three chapters are about sanctification. Uh, I think one of the more helpful ways to think about it, not that those things are wrong or bad in and of themselves, but the most helpful way to think about it is this. The first three chapters are concerned, Paul is principally concerned with this question. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Because the Bible says that if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. So, so do you have the Holy Spirit? When you become a Christian, something amazing happens to you. You get the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and then, so he solidifies that in chapters 1 through 3. Then he asks a different question. What difference does the Holy Spirit make in your life? Right? Write that down and hold on to that, because that's what we'll look at the other three chapters. If you are a Christian in here today, the fundamental question you should be asking yourself is what difference has the Holy Spirit made in my life? How has the Holy Spirit changed me and made me a different person? Uh, Fifteen years ago, um, the most amazing woman I've ever met, um, not my mother, but I mean, she's awesome too, but the most amazing woman I've ever met came into my, my life, Theresa Ann. And um, when she came into my life, as I look back, fifth, that's my wife, for those of you that are confused, like, who is this random person, like a Melchizedekian figure? Um, <laughs> no, she's my wife. She's back there, I hope. And um, it's hard to see her. She knows I, I need to look at her whenever I'm preaching. Like, there's something about it. She's the familiar face that, that I look at. And so um, she came into my life 15 years ago and radically changed my life for this one reason. She loved me, and she challenged me. I'm grateful for it. Completely changed the way I look at life. Now, if that's true of, of my wife, how much more should it be true of the Holy Spirit? So even if you're not married, you have something inside of you, God himself, that the scripture says is supposed to change you. Your life is supposed to be different. And the rest of Ephesians is unpacking that. If the Holy Spirit's in us, how does that look in the life of the church? If the Holy Spirit's in us, what does that say about our purity? If the Holy Spirit's in us, what does that say about our marriages? What does it say about our child rearing? What does it say about every aspect of our life? That's what Paul is principally concerned with. And because of that, that's what you should be principally concerned with. Every so often, you need to pause and ask yourself the question, if, I, if I'm a Christian and I have the Holy Spirit inside of me, don't ask me where, he's just in there. If that is the case, 
How do I live differently? Do I love people more? Am I more generous? Am I more kind? Do I give up more of my time? And you should see uh, some kind of change. It might be incremental, but you should see it. And if you don't see it, you know, either you're quenching the spirit, which Paul talks about, or grieving the spirit to some degree, or, or it's the case where you don't have the spirit. But it is the case that the Holy Spirit should produce something inside of you that, that is change. And that's what Paul talks about here in the midst of all these imperatives. So I want us to read. We're going to begin with the first 16 verses, and then we'll, we'll dive in from there. Let's, let's go. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let us go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we have. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you might work in us uh, to convict us, but also to heal us. Lord, we, your people, need um, a solve. We, we need um, your comfort and your hope and your joy. And so I pray that this uh, passage might do both over the coming weeks, be a challenge to us, but at the same time be a comfort to us, that we might know that we belong to you and that we might live in accordance with that. And so bless us now, I pray, in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen and amen. This is a big passage, and because of that, I'm going to probably live in this for the uh, next two or three weeks. It all depends on how far we get. But I'm going to give you the point of this passage up front. Everybody ready? So look at verse number, um, let's, let's kind of look at verse number 13 down to the end 
of uh, verse number 16, and here's the point that Paul is making. Paul is saying this, if we, if we want a church that's filled with mature people, if we want a church that is, is working properly, if we want a church that, that is flourishing and growing in love, then we, we need to pursue unity. Holy Spirit has to work in us to pursue unity. If we want a, a, a church that's a mature church where, where everyone loves and cares for one another, everyone treating each other well, we have to, we have to be a church that pursues gospel unity. And, and what do we mean by gospel unity? It, it simply means this. It means that although we are a diverse body of people, Though, though that we have different sensibilities and different thoughts and we're all different, it means that we, we come together under the banner of Christ. And therefore, we transcend all of our earthly differences because now we're unified under the person and work of Christ. In fact, go, go to chapter 1 and look at what Paul says uh, in chapter 1 and verse number 10. And, and he talks about the plan of God. Now, there's two types of unity that Paul mentions in chapter 4. The first one is this. As a plan, so this is chapter 1, verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him. Literally, to unify all things on him. Things in heaven and things on earth. That type of unity is an accounting term. It means that it's the plan of God in cre creation to bring all of us in here today, to gather all of us in here today. Although we are different, all of us are different, it is the plan of God in Christ Jesus to bring all of us together. Everybody with me? That's, that's unity from God's perspective. God's perspective is this. All of us are uh, uniquely made in the image of God. Though we have different sensibilities, though we have different desires, though we think differently and act differently, it is God's desire to unify, literally to gather all of us up into one body so that we might worship him and love him. Now, that's the word unity from God's perspective. But in chapter 4, there's another kind of unity. And Paul shows us that in verse number 3, where it's eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The word there is oneness. It's a oneness that you and I are called to maintain. And so for the, for, for the next two or three weeks, we're going to look at how, how can we be unified? Because let's face it, we live in a, in a world of disunity. We live in a world where people are getting divorces, and then we live in a world where, where we see nations fighting one another. We live in a world in which we see people are constantly fighting everybody. Why is that? Because sin has, has caused disunity and division towards all of humanity. From the, from the Genesis down, there's been division and, and strife. And it's God who says, it is my desire now to bring everyone underneath the banner of Christ. And it is our responsibility then to, to maintain that and keep that. That's what Paul is saying over the course of chapter 4. And now let's, let's dive down and look at the particulars. How does God do this? And there are three things I want to show you this morning very briefly. The first is our calling to unity. The second is our conduct in unity. And last, it's our confession, our one confession that brings us together in unity. First of all, our calling in unity. 
Notice what it says in verse number one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So underline that word worthy. What is he talking about? What have we been called to? Worthy of the call to which we were called. Paul will unpack that the rest of chapters four through six. But here in principle, he leads by saying, the one thing you've been called to right now is the work of unity within the life of the church. That is your fundamental priority right now in every area of life. Now, here's the thing I've realized about unity. For some of us, unity is a matter of temperament. There are some of you inside here today that are more agreeable than others, and I know this because I shepherd you, right? There are some of you today, um, you know, when I talk to you, you're agreeable. You're, you know, you're, you're like one of my children, you know, they just get along well. And then there's some of you, that's a challenge, right? And so we think when we talk about unity and peacemaking, well, that's just for the specialist. And we see that even in our society today. Uh, for instance, with all the fighting that's going on in the Middle East and Ukraine and the Gaza Strip, they have these people known as peace brokers. And what do these people do? These are people who go into these situations and they are, are uniquely gifted to bring peace. And, and that's all they do. I have a friend who makes hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to do one thing, to make peace between two clients. He's a lawyer. And one of his jobs is to bring people at the table. And one day I asked him, I was like, wait a minute, you don't do any like fancy courtroom stuff? He was like, no. All I do is get two people in a room and say, hey, you're not being reasonable. You're not being reasonable. You need to figure out a way together. And I said, and they pay you for this. And he says, they pay me very well. And I make millions of dollars for my company. And he said, it's, Dennis, you would not believe it. It's over silly things that people fight over. But it's my job to unify them together. And some of us inside here today feels like that, feel like that. We think, hey, so-and-so is agreeable. He's kind. He's nice. Let, let him try and make peace. But notice what Paul is saying in this passage. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, literally y'all, y'all, to be peacemakers. So, so hear me today, you don't have to be a peace broker. You don't have to be a fancy high-priced lawyer. You don't, you don't have to be someone with the gift of unity. One of the things that Paul says immediately is this, it is all of our responsibility to seek unity in every situation. And granted, granted, for some of us, that's easy because, you know, we have an easygoing personality. And for some of us, that's challenging because you're a tough out, right? You know, I have a child. She's a tough out. You know, if you, if you want to get her to do anything, you got to pray and fast and, and throw in whole burnt offering, all right? Because she's not gonna, she's not gonna like be easy to grapple. But, but hear me today, even someone, I, I gave it away, it's a her. Anyway, um, <laughs> but, but hear me today, one of the principal things that Jesus is saying here, the Holy Spirit is trying to show us today, it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter your temperament, doesn't matter if you're gruff or kind or anything else, what matters most is the whole, all of us pursue unity. That's it. 
We might be a naturally divisive person, doesn't matter. We're called, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're called to bring unity to a situation. One of my um, favorite mystics, Francis of Assisi, um, he was a, a saint. He, he prayed this prayer, and it's a powerful prayer, and I want you to listen. Here's what he, what he prayed. This is before the Lord. He says, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hate, may I bring love. Where offense, may I bring pardon. May I bring union in place of discord. Now, let me ask you a question. Is this your prayer? Is this your prayer? Wherever you are, whether it's in your home, in the church, on your job, are you, are you a source of unity and peace, or you are a lightning rod for, for conflict and division? And, and some of you know where you stand on this. I, I don't know where you stand on this, but some of you, wherever you go, you're like Esau. You know, every, you're, your hand is against everybody. You're always fighting with people and arguing with people. Like wherever you go, there's like a trail of, of fire and blood, right? Instead of you bringing together the body of Christ, this needs to be our desire. It needs to be your desire. I notice what Paul says in verse number three. We shouldn't just pursue it because, oh, well, that's what Christ calls us to do, so I'm going to be nice to you anyway. Ah, forget nice. I wish we could take nice out of the dictionary. Christians aren't called to be nice. We're called to be loving, and that's a higher calling. Anyone can be nice. You don't even have to be a Christian to be nice. But you know what? You have to be a Christian to love well. And we're going to get to that in a minute, right? But look, this text says we ought to be eager, eager to pursue unity. What does it mean to be eager to pursue unity? Let me put a picture in your mind. Think of a child two days before Christmas, waiting to open their presents. I have four children, and it's all I could do to keep them from tearing open every box to get to their Christmas present right before Christmas. Why? Because they're eager. Eager. And Paul says we shouldn't pursue unity just as something, you know, I kind of do this just to make it work. Paul says we need to be eager. We need to be champions of it, running after it. And notice he says eager to maintain. Underline the word maintain, because that's important. It is not your job to find unity. It is not your job to create unity. It's not your job to cause unity. It's the Holy Spirit's job to do that. All you are called to do is maintain it. To maintain it. To keep what is already there. That's our responsibility. And let me ask you, is that your desire? Is that your desire? It should be. Because that's a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart and mind. You're eager, willing. You're always the first person to go and try to bring back together two things that are broken. Whether that be in your marriage, whether that be at your job, whether that be in school. You know, sometimes you have roommates, college students, I know. I didn't have a good roommate until my senior year. And that's, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, the first two years was because of me, okay? My, I mean, I was the worst roommate for almost two years. I've gotten better. My wife could testify to that, right? But the first two years I was in college, I was an awful roommate. But it wasn't until my senior year 
that the Holy Spirit really got a hold of my heart to show me how I was creating disunity and contention around the people I lived with. And I was convicted of that. Because that's something that all of us need to pursue. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get to the second one. So unity is our calling, but, but Paul isn't just concerned that we pursue unity as our calling. Paul is also concerned about how we do it. And let me say this. There are some of us we could pursue. If the sermon ended here and you left, you'd be like, all right, I need to maintain unity, and it doesn't matter how you do it. You know, you, you try, some of you are given over to totalitarian tendencies, right? It's my way or the highway. That's how I'll obtain unity. It's by blood and guts. Doesn't matter what, you're going to do it my way or you're not going to do it at all, right? That's some of us inside here today. But, but that's why I love the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul is not just a preacher or an exegete. He's a pastor, and he knows that if he just had stopped there by saying strive for unity, all of us inside here today would be like murdering one another because we're not getting on the program, right? And so what does he say? He says, here's how I want you to pursue unity. Look at verse number two. So underline the word with all. That means in every way. That, that's what that signals. In every way. Here is how I want you to pursue unity. It's not however you feel. It's not with totalitarian tendencies. It's not in a mean, vicious kind of way, notice what he says. Notice the graces that he gives. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of bond of peace. What is Paul saying here? Here is how you strive for unity. Here's how you do it. First of all, Paul says it's with humility. Now, what is biblical humility? Uh, I've, I've looked at a bunch of different um, definitions for unity, and, and you can improve upon C.S. Lewis's. And here's what Lewis says. Lewis says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less by putting the needs of others before your own. That's humility. It's actively putting the needs of others before your own. That's how you pursue unity. The next one is gentleness. And the word gentleness here is a unique word. It means, it means self-control, that you don't fly off the handle and get angry at people just because they're not doing what you want them to do. Or you don't get angry and frustrated and push people away just because uh, you know, they're not compliant. He says, deal with people in, with gentleness. And again, this isn't about being nice. This is about when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you have genuine love, you deal gently with people. You give them the benefit of the doubt. Notice the third one, patience. It means bearing under a weight. It means though the Lord might put people around you that are difficult to deal with, you still bear patiently with them instead of being impatient. Notice the other one, bearing with one another in love. It means not to be vengeful or to take it out on other people just because they've done something to you. That's how we maintain unity. Not being vengeful, but turning the other cheek. Not being vengeful, but instead understanding the nature of the situation. Now here's Paul's overall point. Are you ready? When he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, here's a point that he's trying to drive home. Where these things are present, 
you could almost guarantee unity is present. When you have a home, when you have a college, when you have a job, no matter where it is, if there are people who are humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another, and eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and a bond of peace, there is unity and peace. Praise the Lord. But here's what he's saying as well. If you're in a place where there is pride, and if you're in a place where there's anger, and if you're in a place where people are impatient, and if you're in a place where people do not bear with one another, instead of being vengeful with one another, you'd almost guarantee there'll be um, disunity. In fact, it's so powerful that Paul says, even if one of these things are not present, there will be disunity strife. That's the point of him giving this list. That's how powerful this is. I remember reading um, in my preparation for the study, I remember reading a story. I was like, I have to share this. Because, you know, this is, this is like a knock on the church, right? There was a huge church split. Um, I, you know, I, I wasn't there, so I, this is secondhand I was reading. There was a huge church split. Where a church split in half, everybody was fighting one another and arguing, and it got so bad, they, they took it to the civil courts, and the civil court says, we don't want anything to do with this, it's too messy. And so they went back to the church courts. And in the process of going through the church courts and trying to decide who did what and what did they, uh, what the other person did, they found out that the, point, the start of all of this drama happened because an elder got a smaller slice of ham than the person on the side of him. Now, there are some of you out here saying, Pastor Dennis, that's ridiculous. All of this fighting and arguing and splitting up of the body of Christ happened because somebody got a smaller piece of ham, and I would say, I've heard of worse. For some of you, someone just needs to look at you wrong. Oh, oh, am I, did I just make that up? Oh, look, I've been a pastor 10 years. I can tell you for a fact. Some of you inside, people just have to look at you wrong. Or people have to not acknowledge you. Or, or somebody forgot to tell you happy birthday on your birthday. Like crazy stuff people use to be vengeful and, and say mean things towards you. You know that's true. And Paul is simply saying, look at, look at how you and I are supposed to act. Look at our conduct. This is the conduct that you and I should have at all times. We should be striving to think of others better than ourselves. At all times, we should be, we should be under self-control and not be angry. At all times, we should practice patience and bearing one another up. That's our calling, brothers and sisters. That's who we are. And by the way, I know it's hard. By the way, Paul knows it's hard. Look back at verse number one. He says, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. Why did he say a prisoner of the Lord? Why not an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ? I urge you to do this. Here's why. There's a cost to pursuing unity. That's what Paul is saying here, a prisoner of the Lord. Through his efforts to maintain the unity of the spirit and a bond of peace, it cost him something. It cost him his freedom. And if you and I are going to pursue unity within the life of the church, it will cost you something. It will cost you. Sometimes you not getting your own way. It will cost you having to be insulted and not retaliate. It will cost you laying aside your pride. 
for the sake of the body, for, and even more than that, for the sake of Christ. It will cost you. And the question is, are you willing to pay that price? And for many people, they're not willing to pay that price. They're willing to hold on to the hurt and the pain. They're willing to, to be vengeful. But that's not the way of Christ. And Paul is saying, please, listen, this is your calling. And this is how you're supposed to live out this calling within the body of Christ, within your marriage, within, within your relationships, in your school, wherever you find yourself. Now, there's one more thing I have to tackle before I leave. This particular point, I'm going to wrap up here in a little bit, but notice the word humility and gentleness. I want you to, to circle that because that's important. In the ancient Near East, during the time that Paul lived, humility and gentleness were not seen as, as virtues. They were seen as vices. In fact, worse than that, they were seen as liabilities. If you lived during the time of Paul to talk about being gentle and being patient, that wasn't a sign of, of a grace, a virtue. That was a sign, principally, of weakness. That you're a coward. And I'm afraid that when I read and I listen to Christians today, that thinking is coming back. Many people think that if you practice humility and gentleness and patience, people are going to walk all over you. I don't want people to walk all over me. I'm an American. That's not what we do. Okay, first of all, um, no one is going to walk over you if you practice gentleness and if you practice humility. And do you want to know how I know this? If you read the Bible, specifically in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus, the two characteristics that most define who Jesus is are these two, gentle and lowly. Lowly meaning humility. Now, I want you, the next time you think about that, I want you to ask yourself a question. Are you more righteous and holy than Jesus that you can't be humble and gentle? Listen to me. Do you know how much strength it takes to be gentle and humble? We don't. We don't have an appreciation for that because those are two things we struggle with. But notice scripture says in Philippians chapter 2 that even though Jesus was in the form of God, he humbled himself and became obedient unto that, even the death of the cross. If that's a sign of weakness, then you need to tell me what is a sign of strength. From the moment Jesus was born and he was cognizant of who he was, he knew that he would have to humble himself and be gentle. And he knew beyond any shadow of a doubt, that he was going to die on the cross for your sins. And yet, the strength of character that it takes to be gentle and humble led him to go to the cross and die on the cross for our sins. That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of mighty strength. And what we need is more Christians who are humble and gentle and have the strength of character to maintain unity. And by the way, not uniformity. We, we shouldn't all be dressing alike and like saying the same things. That's weird. Right? It's not like when you go to a, to a football game or a basketball game, everyone's like looking the same and acting the same. You could tell Alabama fans everywhere. This isn't about that. 
One of the things that I love about Christianity, when the body is working right, all of us look different, act different, but, but we are all under one creed, and we're going to get there in a minute. But the point here is this. Please do not look at these Christian graces as a sign of weakness, but look at them as a sign of strength, that when you are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, you evidence these things, and then you're able to change the world in the same way Jesus Christ changed the world by these two particular things. Now let's go to our final point. Notice how we have one confession. So we've looked at our one calling, our one conduct, and finally our one confession. Look, look at verse number four, down to verse number six. Notice the amount of times Paul used the word one. We have one body, one spirit, just as you've been called with one hope. Um, our one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. Why, why is Paul talking about this oneness? What's the deal with this oneness? Because this is the ground of our unity. See, it's one thing to be called to unity. It's another thing to have our conduct be unified. But, but what, what do we ground that in? Paul says we ground it in our one confession around these things. Notice what he says in verse number three. Eager to maintain the unity in the bond of peace. What is he talking about the bond of peace? Those are the bonds he mentions in chapter four. I mean, in verse number four, the one body, one spirit. He's, we are meant to look at these things. These are the things that bond us together and keep us together. The fact that we have one confession. Long time ago, I was a chemistry major, and here's like the one thing I remember from chemistry, this and the titration experience and, and emulsification. But here's one of the things I remember from doing chemistry is this. The more bonds you have with an element, the stronger the element is. Those of you that do chemistry, you know that. The more stable the element is, the more stronger it is, the more bonds it have. And look, there's seven here. The Bible says a three-chord strand is not easily broken. I can't imagine a seven-chord strand. That, that's what holds all of us together, that we have one confession. About five years ago, I went to Durango for a missions trip, and, and none of us spoke Spanish. And we were waiting for our translator, and translator didn't come, and it was, it was a whole thing. And so thankfully, um, I remember to download um, Google, Google Translate. That's back, that's in the dark ages, when Google Translate was just coming in. You know, it was funky and weird. But, but I, I downloaded um, Google Translate, and we were at a restaurant, and one of the nationals uh, that, that, that they had there that was studying to be a pastor, he sat down on the side of me, and I was like, man, I don't know Spanish. Like, how am I supposed to communicate with this guy? And I was like, oh, yes, Google Translate. So I took it out. And, and we started texting one another, one another back and forth, and he started using it, and it translated. And for an hour and a half, we were laughing and having a good time about talking about each other or talking to each other about our conversion, about our children, about our plans for ministry, and we went on and on. And after we were done and we packed up and left, one of the people that came with us said, I didn't know you know that guy. How did you know that guy? I was like, I don't know that guy. But, but I could tell you what I did know of him that he was a Christian, he loved Jesus, and we had one faith, one Lord, one, we were part of one body, we had one spirit, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And that's all I really need to know about. You know the problem in our world today? We don't want unity, we want uniformity. We want everyone to believe the same way as us um, politically, we want everyone to believe the same as us socially, we want everyone to believe the exact same thing. 
Do you know what the world does? The world grounds unity in externals, right? So, so if we all think alike, we all act alike, we all put on the same uniform, we all talk the same, we walk lockstep, that's not unity, that's uniformity. And our world demands it. That's why the world hates the church, because the church doesn't demand uniformity. We demand unity around one confession. And notice, none of these things are earthly, or none of these things are external. All of these things are grounded in heaven. And so if you meet someone with the same confession, that's the most important thing you need to know about them. Not who they voted for, not what they believe about this issue, how much money they have, where they went to school, if they're an Alabama fan. Who cares? Because we are talking about essential unity. And what is essential for us to be unified? It is this confession. And anything outside of this confession, by the way, I'm not saying that doesn't matter. When Paul says there's neither Jew or Greek, bond or free, male or female, he doesn't mean that those distinctions don't matter. He's just saying those things are not essential to ultimate unity with Christ. That's the point that he's making. And if you doubt me, let me ask you this question. The Bible clearly says that we are in union with Christ. Amen? Everyone could agree with that, right? Now, let me ask you this question. On what basis can you be unified with Christ? Do you, do you think your, uni, your union with Christ is based on your humanity? Do you think your union with Christ is based on who you vote for? Do you think, if you actually think that, you're out to lunch? Because when Christ came to earth, there was nothing that was in common between us and him. He was God. He was perfect. He was holy. What, on what basis is he going to be united with you and I? Were it not for his good pleasure of just bringing us together under what confession? Then why is it that we Christians demand it? Come on. Why do we demand us for, to walk in lockstep in every area of life when Christ didn't demand that for you? Man, even when you were a sinner, as alienated as you could possibly be from him, he says, I will still love you and bring you into my kingdom. He didn't wait for you to start believing exactly the way that he believed. And by the way, you'll never do that this side of eternity. But the Bible still says we are in union with him. Why? Because when Christ died on the cross, he secured union with him through our common confession. And when you and I pursue unity, may it be on those grounds and not some artificial ground of this world. May we pursue it because we have this one core confession. I want to leave you with the words of Christ as he prayed in John 17, 21 through 23. Here's what Jesus prayed. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Do you understand what he's saying there? It's pretty powerful if you really 
like grasp what he's trying to say. He's trying to say that when you and I are unified around the right things, the world looks at us and they marvel. You know, the, the peace, the, the guys that go and try to make peace in the Middle East, Paul, uh, Jesus said that if we're doing it right, they would come to us first to find out how we're doing it. Yeah. That when the angels look at the church, the angels should look at a church and be like, wow, that's, that's what it means to be unified? When the nations look at us, the church, they should be like, oh, wow. Is that what unity looks like in a marriage? Is that what it looks like between um, parents and children? Is that, is that what it looks like on your job when you're working with folks? They're supposed to marvel at us. And here's the good news. The good news is, even though it's hard for us to keep this unity, I'll show you one last thing. Notice what Paul says in verse number seven. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. If you ever are caught in a situation where you're like, I don't know how to bring about unity, here's what the Bible says. God's grace through the power of the Spirit leads you to do it. If you pray and trust the Lord, he will give you the grace to bring unity to disunity, peace to conflict, love where there's hate. Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word. We thank you so much for the message of Scripture. We thank you so much that your word is real and true. Holy Spirit, I know that you work in us to produce unity. Sometimes we're too stubborn to lay hold of it. But I thank you that we have a gracious king who bears with us, who is humble and gentle. And he works in and through us, even though our unity looks messy, and it often does. I thank you that he works in us still to bring it about. Be with your kingdom people now in Jesus' name. Amen.